Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. This is Writers on Film, the only podcast dedicated to books on cinema. Hello everybody and welcome to Writers on Film. My name is John Bleasdale, I'm a writer and film critic, and today I'm going to be talking to Patrick McGilligan. He is a biographer whose subjects are as diverse as Orson Welles, Clint Eastwood, Jack Nicholson, James Cagney, Mel Brooks, and many, many others. He is also an editor, and if you're interested in writing, I suggest you listen right to the end of the podcast, because there's a little bit of a surprise for any writers out there, uh, and something that you might be interested in pursuing yourselves. Happy New Year, everybody, by the way. This is going to be the first podcast to go out in uh, 2022. I hope that it will be a successful a year as last year was in terms of the podcast at least i know for a lot of people 2021 was not a particularly pleasant year with everything going on in the world let's hope 2022 is a little bit more successful a little bit more a little bit brighter in terms of everything going on one piece of good news that i'd like to share with you and spread is that we were named the writers on film podcast was named as uh, one of the top 50 Best Podcasts of 2021 by Time Out Magazine. This is you know, wonderful given that we've only been around for six months and given that we're in such good company and, you know, number 19 as well. So uh, as Paul Hardcastle would have said, no, 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 19 in a totally more, in a totally different and more tragic pop context has to be said. But to help us out and to continue our upward surge in popularity and uh, critical acclaim. It would be great if you could subscribe if you haven't already, like, leave a review uh, on a podcasting site, tell your friends, tell anybody who you might think is interested. But before you do any of that, oh, 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 and and you can follow me on Twitter, Dr. John T, D-R-J-O-N-T-Y. But now, before you do any of that, Please enjoy the conversation. Well, my, my two worst, uh, it's happened more than once, but my two worst were, you know, spending an afternoon with Jimmy Stewart mm-hmm. and him taking me home after a lunch or something and uh, him, you know, really... I, I think he did this with a lot of other people, but, you know, breaking down and weeping when reminiscing about this, that, and the other thing, spending a couple hours there and coming back and, 
having nothing on tape and have have to recreate the whole thing for a Sunday piece for the Boston Globe. So, uh, yeah, that was probably the worst. Um, but I was trained to recreate, so it was okay. <laughs> I don't use a tape recorder much anymore. No? No. I mean, the truth is that, uh, you know, when I started 50 years ago, really, some people had never been tape recorded. Many people had never been interviewed. So nowadays, everybody is interviewed all the time. Everybody who's current and most of the golden age and the older Hollywood generation have passed on. You know, if I was Googling uh, Timothy Chalamet um, and, and I finishing a book about Woody Allen, so I would, you know, I would come up with dozens and dozens of interviews with him in which the uh, the other thing that happens is when people are active, they're more practiced and rehearsed and they very rarely say anything out of school. Whereas 40 years ago, you'd go to see someone who hadn't been talked to for forever. Mm. Uh, quite often, I would go to talk to people and they'd say, you're the first person that ever asked to talk to me. Wow. Yeah. I mean, some, well, remember, I did five books of interviews with screenwriters at a time when nobody was really talking to screenwriters either. So I did five books of interviews with screenwriters. So, you know, when you went to see people like, you know, W.R. Burnett um, or even Julius Epstein, you were one of very few people that had asked to tape record their reminiscences. And this was true even when you saw people, you know, I would say second tier stars with no, with no pejorative meant to second tier like Joel McRae or somebody, you know. Mm. Uh, they were unaccustomed to having someone sit there for several hours and seriously tape record them. But nowadays, everybody is, everybody who's active is rehearsed and practiced and either careful about what they say or repetitious about what they say. The, the great you know, older generation has mostly passed. And there were very few people who, back when they were alive of that generation, who didn't respond warmly to request because they weren't often treated, you know, at great length seriously with, with the kind of interview that you're doing for your podcast. Um, it was it was either rare or unusual or unique for them to be approached. So I often heard that. I even heard that with people when I was doing my Altman book. These were much younger people who said, oh my gosh, no one's ever asked to interview me before, you know. Um, right. Because it was people behind the camera or behind the scenes. Um, and some and some relative stars, you know, who weren't uh, stars on commercial terms. How did you start working in, in sort of biography? Because that seems to be your main interest. Yeah, well, I have to give you the Reader's Digest version because we could talk only about that. But I, I was... I'm from Madison, Wisconsin, and at the University of Wisconsin, by the time I went to the university there, there was a group of older uh, film critics and scholars who really knew a lot. Most of them had come from the East Coast and had seen everything on TV, and they started watching things uh, in the archives because they had the Warner Brothers archives and the, um, I think it's the Republic archives uh, and RKO archives between roughly 1930 and 19, early 1950s. And these were films that in the Midwest you know, in particular, you couldn't see anywhere. But even in New York, some of them were films that hadn't, weren't shown on television, or many of them. Were. And these people started watching these films around the clock. And at the same time, there were all these protests going on and riots and um, 60s movements of various colors. And um, we were boycotting classes. I had a TA who allowed me to write a paper on Cagney rather than go to class. 
Hmm. Um, I'd never watched a Cagney movie or thought about it. I started out writing a paper comparing Cagney to Bogart and realized that was even stupider than and more grandiose than what I what I could do um, in a limited amount of time on a term. Ended up writing a paper about Cagney and the TA said, this is pretty good. Have you ever thought of submitting it to the Velvet Light Trap, which was a journal on campus run by a lot of these older uh, people, older by a couple of years. And um, some of them were graduate students. And I said, yes. And is, is there any money in that? And then when I took it to that editor, he said, oh, this is pretty good. Could you rewrite it? Uh, and I said, okay, I rewrote it. And he said, this is when I turned it in and they published it. He said, this is pretty good. Have you ever thought of turning it into a book? And I said, well, is there any money in that? There's not. I can <laughs> went to the bookstore and went to the film book section where I'd never been before and wrote down the names of five publishers and editors and sent off laboriously typed, you know, pitches with copy of the article and four responded and said no. And one um, in London, Tantivy Press, run by Alan Isles, who um, was a great father of a lot of film books, said, well, you know, if you can improve it and make it longer <laughs> and turned it into more of a biography. Uh, and less of a, you know, studious, you know, analytical thing, uh, we publish it. So I had a contract and I was an undergraduate. So some of the uh, graduate students envied me. And I'm, I assure you, uh, it was nothing to envy because it was a, an oppressive burden and, you know, it didn't get paid very much. But Cagney was a good subject. So that was while I was still in college. Did you learn to love Cagney when you were, uh, as you were writing it? Yes. And, you know, to this day, I have a, a strange love of Cagney as though he was my first girlfriend, you know. Um, <laughs> he's, he's pure as an actor in a way that most are not. He's complicated as a human being um, politically, which for me is interesting. And personally, um, he reaches into all kinds of areas because he becomes a producer and he, he becomes a producer with his family and then he has a kind of rather tragic end. And uh, you have to keep in mind that when I started my term paper, you know, there was no book about Cagney, no such thing existed. So I was doing it a lot by watching the films and then working in the library, trying to find articles, you know, that had been written. And uh, it was all pretty ham-handed and amateurish, uh, what I was doing. And, you know, subsequently, he had kind of a reemergence. His autobiography came out, and he got the first AFI award or the second or whichever one it was. And he started to come back into the public uh arena slightly because his doctor told him to be more active. And, uh, but I was doing it all, you know, from scratch in a way that nowadays, you know, I've gone back to, which is I started in libraries and I moved out of libraries and said, screw libraries and went to see people and, um, you know, to a lesser extent, archives, um, not libraries. And now it's back into libraries and the internet and archives uh, because the people no longer, if you were writing about Cagney today, you'd be stuck with archives, you know, right. and, my, and my book and other books and then making sense of everything. And so that's more what I do today, how I start it. You have to always conquer the library and the databases and the documents and the archives. And I, I didn't when I was writing the Cagney book, my most expensive thing I did was take a plane trip to Washington, D.C. and watch The Time of Your Life, which could never be shown because Cagney only had a seven-year contract with Soroyan, the writer, or he would take the rights back. So he did take the rights back. At that time, it could never be shown. And I thought that was, you know, incredibly resourceful of me. 
<laughs> and I did a few other resourceful things, you know, like I got his Cold War Department of Defense documentaries via mail because nobody really wanted them. So they were glad to send them to me as long as I sent them back. And I got to see almost everything, but I didn't interview anyone. I had a couple of letters maybe, but mm. I didn't interview anyone. Uh, so it was a really, it's, it's kind of an embarrassing book, but also uh, I'm proud of it. And then several years later, the publisher, or maybe like six, seven years later, the publisher said they had a request for a thousand books, I think from the AFI, and they only had like, you know, 200 in stock. And uh, could they have permission to reprint? And I said, well, as long as you're going to reprint, you know, could I, could I rewrite the book uh, and put in interviews with all the people that I've met and talked to in the intervening time? So I did. I totally rewrote the book, incorporating much more interviews and research. And I think it's better. <laughs> had, you, had you interviewed Cagney as well at that point? No, no, no. To this very day, I have very few regrets about people I never met or interviewed, because mostly I met and interviewed everybody I tried to meet and interview. No, Cagney was always writing me letters saying, well, I'll be on Martha's Vineyard in August if you're there, you know, but mm -hmm. I'm not on Martha's Vineyard in August. In fact, once I was interviewing Bill Wellman in Osterville, Massachusetts, where he had um, his summer home, and the phone rang. We were all having brunch, and uh, <laughs> it was Cagney and Martha's Vineyard, you know, said, Tom McGilligan to come over, you know, but I wasn't leading the kind of life where I could do anything that someone said. So when he was in the mood, I wasn't there. You know, I went to see Raul Walsh and spent hours with him. And Raul says, Jimmy was here yesterday. Oh, <laughs> God damn it. <laughs> That's so, so irritating. I so I eventually became very good friends with his brother and I met his sister. And to this day, I'm in touch with the niece who has all of the records for Cagney Productions. Um, and I'm very fond of, of her and that branch of the family. And I have all these, you know, kind of near misses uh, with Jimmy and complimentary letters about my book. I was going to say, yeah, he must have, I mean, it being the first book and it being virgin territory, he must have uh, appreciated that. I don't know. He probably turned the pages, you know, I mean, mm -hmm. I'm, I'm that way. I don't read things about myself and he probably didn't, but he did, he did write me a very nice letter and say it was a job of work, uh, which was, you know, a John Fordian phrase uh, of the era, meaning, uh, you know, it's the highest praise. Well, you did a professional job, you know. Right. Um, with what you had to work with. So, uh, yeah, so I think of him as my, uh, you know, long lost first girlfriend. I think of him fondly. I still like, you know, uh, some of the movies enormously. Uh, the vehicles, uh, I appreciate. There aren't many great Cagney films. There just are not mm. Um, mm. as films, but there are many great Cagney performances. Uh, and so, yeah, I like them. I like them. I like some of those very early, I was watching some very early 30s stuff that he was doing. Now, now the names are going to escape me, but, you know, quick fire sort of pre-code comedies. That, uh... Yeah, he's, he's very alive to the moment. He doesn't date. His performances really don't date. The filming dates mm. um, and most of the early 30s films are very exciting for the performances and for the pre-code stuff. And, you know, Public Enemy is a great film, but it also dates, you know. And there's very few that don't date. Um, and he himself is just kind of a dated, archaic character, you know, really, even mm. by the time he gets into film, his kind of person, you know, no longer existed in the same way in America. So I find him watch, he's still endlessly watchful. But, but I have a, I can't watch directors' bad films. They really... Um, 
they they bore me. But mm. I can watch good actors bad films <laughs> because the the actors are often very exciting even when the script is is terrible or the direction is pedestrian. And Cagney's problem, he, of course, he fought against it, which is one of the reasons why he was interested to write about. He's, he walked out on Warner Brothers like twice and was sued. Um, it was very early in, in his career, blackballed, you know, for being a, a troublemaker. And he was walking out because he was making a lot of, oh, you know, routine programmers, you know, um, in which he didn't have a lot of control and he didn't have a lot of say. And um, they were making a lot of money for the studio and he, they, the material kind of made him sick. And yet he was a really a totally professional guy as an actor, strangely, you know, mm. because he's not really trained professionally, but he acts professionally he was a worker you know i like i like uh actors who go to work you know carrying their lunch bucket you know like jimmy stewart was another um you know very very hard hard working guy working hard on his persona working hard on his craft uh, doing his best to be honest in a role so yeah i you know those are pretty good films but you know you have to get to the yankee doodle dandy because it's just so extraordinary and then a few films in the 40s and then you know white heat and then maybe one two three to, to get really really good films because they had good filmmakers you know behind them but Cagney himself is always always uh, really good fascinates me as well Spielberg tells a story about how Kubrick sort of quotes Cagney as this is why you don't like the acting in The Shining because you don't like you don't like James Cagney he's not one of your favorite actors and so you don't like that sort of sort of style you know yeah well you know I wrote a book about uh, Jack Nicholson too and um, sure. uh, Jack, Jack to me is um, uh, you know he's a great inheritor of Cagney's tradition. Uh, Cagney could be a very quiet performer. Uh, that's what the time of your life is about. You know, a, a guy who's who's quiet, whimsical, wry, philosophical. Um, he could be that person. He wasn't as interesting that way, Some as you might argue, mm. uh, but it showed range and depth and scope, you know, in his acting. Jack can be about Schmidt, very, very uh, close to the bone, very, very quiet, very, very composed. And uh, he does, you know, several films like that in which he's magnificent, really. And he can explode, you know, like in Batman or The Departed um, or in, as the Joker in Batman or in The Shining, he's both. He starts out, you know, in that limited, minimal way that he's very, very good at. He did it for Rafelson and King of Marvin Gardens. You know, he's very, very good at that. He's very good at restraint, very good at it. He likes to blow up, and he's very good at blowing up. He does both in The Shining. Shining is a film that divides people um, on the performance, you know, as much as anything else. Um, I think it's great. Uh, and I, I usually think Jack is great. Um, he has a really high batting average. And I think in films like The Departed, when he goes too far at the end, it's because Scorsese let him and Scorsese shouldn't have. And maybe Jack was doing that to save a scene that he thought needed something, you know, over the top, because he does that all during Witches of Eastwick, you know, partly for that reason, um, the film needs help. I'm not sure The Departed needed that, but it was Scorsese's job to say stop or hold it down. Um, and Jack listens to directors, good Actors, great stars, uh, listen to directors, and they follow a smart director's suggestions. And that's why John Wayne is a great, great actor at times, you know, because he submitted himself, you know, to, to <laughs> very tyrannical directors. 
you know, who nonetheless knew what they were doing. I mean, Henry Hathaway, Hawks, Ford, these were not, you know, nice guys, you know, on the set, patting him on the back saying, good job, John. And that's why he, at times, is a really great actor. Same with Jack, you know, he put himself in front of Antonioni, uh, Milos Foreman, which is a completely different way of acting. Uh, over and over again, he's very careful about who he chooses. As the the stories of filming The Shining are, are torturous, you know, the, the number of takes that Kubrick would demand. Uh, Jack knows that, and he submits. You know, mm. he submits. Chinatown, same. Polanski, you know, very, very difficult, tyrannical director at times. And look what we get. So, uh, and I find Cagney the same way because he submitted himself to John Ford, you know, to Billy Wilder, to Raoul Walsh up in the mountains, um, you know, to to arduous work because he wanted better directors and better material. He knew that directors would give it. He had that uh, temperament of knowing that the artist behind the camera is as important as the artist in front of the camera. That thing with Jack as well, of that, what you're saying about restraint, it's such a, a counterintuitive idea because he's so famous for the explosions that you that very few people notice his control that leads up to that. Well, you know, I, I, I didn't meet Cagney, but I met Jack several times and right. Jack is, is very, very similar in person, which is you approach him cautiously to see which mood he is in. Is he in the, is he in the quiet, warm, contemplative, philosophical, uh, kidding mood? Or is he brooding about to get in your face, you know, and yell at you about something? Sometimes it's the movie they're working on, right. to be honest. An actor gets in a mood and it's like, you know, I was on the set of Taxi Driver uh, overnight one one night with De Niro and Scorsese and, and De Palma stopped by with whoever he was working with at the time. It's like way overnight, you know, like an overnight shoot. And, you know, you were told not to go near Bobby De Niro. Right. Because that would be your death and the end of you. You know, whereas Scorsese, you know, is like a chatty Cathy, you know, and he, come on over here, I'll show you what I'm doing. Come on over here, I'm, now I'm going to do this, now I'm going to do that, now I'm going to do this, now I'm going to do that. You know, he's, he, he doesn't get, uh, his, his creativity doesn't get interrupted. Um, he's thinking of some bigger picture, but De Niro's there thinking, I'm Travis Bickle, you know. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And, you know, sometimes, sometimes, uh, you know, and that's why Jack is so good at playing those kind of characters, because sometimes he's sitting there thinking, I'm Bobby Dupay, you know, and he's just about to to explode. Um, and he has all of that wonderful range. And he does, I think, I think about Schmidt as a brilliant film and some films where he plays charming um, or quiet. He's really, really brilliant because he has that within his range comfortably within his range for Cagney he didn't get to express that very often you see it a little bit in the strawberry blonde where he's playing a you know romantic comedy with Olivia de Havilland directed by Raoul Walsh so again a pretty good director on Warner Brothers terms and uh um but Cagney was never very very romantic and warm fuzzy in that way and yet it's a charming movie because he's giving it that he's giving it his all you know in that direction and he's a professional and he's good at it mm. you know he's not he's not deficient um he never got a chance to work on that side of himself but jack was a very incredibly shrewd actor has con constructed a career where he would do something really commercial uh, and really really easy for the audience to digest and he would turn around and do something really really artistic and really complicated and really hard for the audience to digest so it's much more artistic he was doing that deliberately from easy rider on um 
Cagney right. never had that power. I'm not sure he had that inclination. He certainly didn't have that ability to to craft a career, you know, the way Jack has. And, you know, Jack had the advantage of coming after these people and learning from learning from their mistakes, you know, learning from that it's better to control your career as mm -hmm. much as possible and to think as consciously as possible about what you're going to be doing five years from now. Also, I mean, the the independence that people like Cagney were fighting for and, and sort of won, but in a sort of poison chalice kind of way, you know, Nicholson wasn't exactly gifted, but they were certainly standing on the shoulders of those of those people who've come absolutely, before. Absolutely, absolutely. The studio era was gone in the way that it had controlled actors um, and artists before by the time Jack came along, and they knew it. They were rebels. They, they were rebels, and they wanted to make independent films, and they wanted to make anti-commercial films and anti-Hollywood, go into a genre and, and and blow up the genre. They want, you know, their westerns ride the whirlwind, and or is it ride in the whirlwind, and, and the shooting... You know, these are anti-Westerns, you know, mm. they're really, really kind of brilliant, kind of riddlesome, you know, and you're not sure what to make of them, but they're kind of great, you know, and um, they wanted to do that and and get, and get it out of their system to some extent so he could go back and do Going South, which is really sort of like a movie starring Gabby Hayes or something, you know, but Jack is Gabby Hayes. Yeah, he, he they're pretty good students of film, you know, you see it even with Clint Eastwood, who's, who's I would say, to me, less, certainly less serene cerebral um and less 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 of a range and scope as an as an actor you know he gives his range and scope more or less to directing and and still even his directing pretty much suits his his persona but he studied i mean he knew he came up through the end of the golden age of studio picture making and went through the studio system um, to an extent at towards the end and he learned from the mistakes and he stood on the shoulders of like their their gains it's just Cagney in that generation and this holds true even for Hitchcock who had you ultimately had tremendous creative autonomy and control, but only for a short time in his career at the end. They learned, they're, they're a new, you know, younger, better, stronger generation in terms of their ability to, to control their careers. And they're more responsible for their careers. I don't think Cagney is responsible for uh, Blonde to Crazy, you know, a movie <laughs> from, from whatever year it was, which is a pretty good movie. And what's good in it is him and Joan Blondell and kind of like the... the That's the one that I was uh, I couldn't remember the name of earlier yeah yeah it's a pretty and it's a pretty good movie but you know you can't blame it on Cagney and you you know or you but I think nowadays you know if Tom Hanks makes a really bad movie or um, a junkie movie you can blame it on Tom Hanks yeah exactly yeah and uh, and I and I, I like and respect Tom Hanks tremendously so I'm not using him as a pejorative example but you know if, if Denzel Washington makes a bad movie you can blame it on Denzel he's yeah. got the power and the brains not to do that <laughs> yeah yeah absolutely. and something and something had to have gone wrong now that's not true of a lot of people but it is true of many more people than in 1931 in hollywood you know and also people who have much more conscious understanding of of how to make a movie you know like denzel and tom hanks do so you sometimes want you know they're pretty good their batting averages are fantastic so i'm not saying anything bad about them but if they were to make a bad movie it would be largely their fault <laughs> but i was reading your nicholas ray biography and the same thing occurred to me about humphrey bogart because humphrey bogart falls into i mean he's he's a jobbing actor for for many many years then sort of casablanca maltese falcon come along and he becomes sort of a, a, a proper lead but even when he he has that power and he he, he makes um, knock on any door with Nicholas Ray 
and he wants to sort of create his own sort of project, he kind of has to make it into a Humphrey Bogart movie in order to make it. He's, he, you know, he's constrained by his, you know, what the, the studio persona that he has. Well, I told you I started out comparing Cagney to Bogart, but, you know, I also started out chronologically, as I always do, looking at their films. And Bogart is rather not good, you know, in the 30s. He's not great. Mm. Whereas Cagney is almost instantly great. And Bogart makes a couple of important, interesting movies. So he's not totally, but it's not till the end of the 1930s and films like Roaring Twenties, where he gets, you know, um, compared, contrasted with Cagney, that he begins to emerge as the Bogart, you know, that we know. By the time of Knock on Any Door, yes, he should have, he should have been wiser, you know, I think about a lot of things. But of course, that's around the time of the blacklist and he was incredibly unwise politically and he did some very uh, foolish things publicly um, at that time. And I don't know how good he was as a producer. I think he had sort of crony writers or mm -hmm. writer friends. Now, some of them were pretty good, you know, like John Houston, you know, um, and uh, those are pretty, were pretty good. You couldn't really get a better writer friend than John Houston to write for you and direct for you. And I think really accepting for a moment the really, really great Bogart films of the early and mid-1940s, you know, High Sierra and Maltese Falcon and all those, uh, many, he's He's always good, sometimes great. And then his his filmography after Knock on Any Door, which I don't think is a great film at all. And I don't even like uh, the other one, um, In a Lonely Place. In a lonely place. Mm. Yeah, I think they're very, I don't like them very much. They're just not my kind of cup of tea. But basically, he gets very good. And then his film choices and what he chooses to make all the way up to the time of his death become very adventurous, um, very interesting, not always great. But adventurous, interesting, good performances, great directors often. Um, sometimes they're secondary films by great directors. But he, he really, he does hit a stride. You know, he does hit a stride that Cagney had hit, you know, maybe 10 years before. As a performer, he hits a stride. Um, and as a producer, and I think he was producing... You know, he needed a producing partner. They all need producing partners. And uh, Cagney's producing partner was his brother, which limited him. And uh, he, Bogart had a succession of producing partners, and some of them were really good. And uh, most of them were writers, because these people can't write. Okay, Jack can write. Clint doesn't write. Mm. He needs mm. He needs a writer. So mostly... They need a producing partner who's a writer, and then those people are of a varying degree of good or bad, or like not at their peak, or whatever, or it's a bad idea. But Bogart's pretty good after about 1947. He has about nine or ten good years before he dies of making very interesting movies. Mm. Um, and sometimes, and his performance, like I said, is really, really good. He's really, he knows his persona. Mm. And out, maybe it's that he knows his persona and he likes to play with it, but outside of the, going outside of it worried him going too far outside of it. I don't know. Mm. I don't know. I'd have to think about it and look at it carefully. But uh, in the case of both, uh, in a Lonely Place and Knock on Any Door, he's deferring heavily to Ray uh, and to other people involved in the project, um, including, um, uh, in the case of In a Lonely Place, Gloria Graham, you know, mm. who was somebody who had to be contended with, not as a creative force, but as an anarchic force in that production. And I think he was deferring. I think he does defer. Mm. Cagney defers too, but, and, and I think, but I think Cagney's 50s films they should be great because his 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 
performance skills are still excellent, but the films are not great. Mm. Bogart's better in the 50s. If I had started, if I had gone backwards, you know, started watching the Bogart's last film and worked my way back to 1931 or something with Bogart, I might have written about Bogart. Right. Because his, his third act is very, very good. Cagney's third act is spotty, weak, um, interesting, always good performances, but he was frequently putting himself together with producer friends, you know, who weren't great producers, uh, actor friends like Robert Montgomery. Um, he's in, you know, Lesser Vehicles by John Ford. He Did he have bad luck or, or was he making bad choices? Boy, that's, I don't know. Tough. Tough. But I, that's interesting in terms of how you choose as well what subjects to, to look at with your books, because you've written so many books about so many important people, and, and they're so detailed in terms of their research, there's such a depth to them. How do you, how do you decide, okay, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to look at this person next or, or that person? Well, the honest answer, which is very disappointing, is that the only book that I decided to do all by myself without anybody saying, go ahead, I'll pay you for it, is Cagney. Right. And every other book is circled off a list by an editor. And sometimes names are put on the list by the editor and say, what do you think of this? And I, I say no. And I'm well known for saying no, you know, mm. like, like I said no to Kubrick. <laughs> it's a big mistake because he sells really well. But uh, I, I said, I, I, you know, I don't, I don't get him, you know, I don't really. So I, so it's my list, but it gets added and subtracted to. And, um, you know, like, for example, you know, there was a point in which they said, okay, let's do Fritz Lang. And, you know, Clint Eastwood and Barbara Streisand were on that list. You know, I said, really, you can pay as much for Fritz Lang as you would for Barbara Streisand or Clint Eastwood? Because for me, it's a job. It's a right. job. And um, they said, yeah, the editor, the head of the company, it was St. Martin's Press at the time, was a big German film fan, and he loves Fritz Lang. I go, well, okay, because, you know, all right. And I only knew a little bit more about Fritz Lang than my mother did. So <laughs> I didn't, I didn't know that I was going to be, you know, catapulted into this world, which is, you know, for book to book, you know, or book against any book, Fritz Lang is the most action packed um, and, and the most bizarre in terms of who the character is and what he does. Uh, and I didn't know that. You know, I went to Austria where he was born and put a three by five card on the university bulletin board saying, can a researcher help me? And um, I went to Berlin for the first time and, and said, what do you got? <laughs> and, uh, and that's what I that's what I do. I started out very stupid, you know, with everybody. But but um, I wasn't saying to myself at all, boy, this would be great research and what a great topic this will be. And, and, and the opposite is really what happens. You're kind of appalled by the mountain you've you've just you've agreed to climb and uh, you're stuck with it. You know, uh, and I've many, many times, you know, after starting a book or making the first trip on a book, you know, phoned my editor or agent and said, please, can we can I switch to something else and quit? <laughs> because, Get me out of here. Get me out of here. Yeah, I mean, I started the I started the Clint Eastwood book by having dinner with Richard Schickel, I think, on his dime right. in Los Angeles, who I had never met, and he was about two thirds of the way through his authorized biography of Clint, you know, and he he did his best to impress me about how what a great memory Clint has and what a great source he is about everything and what a wonderful easy 
great job he had doing Clint's book. And I have to say, I, I envied him, you know, I sounded like a great job to me, you know, and I went out and I went to a phone booth and I called my editor and I said, please, can I get out of this book? <laughs> Because I didn't see, I didn't see that I could do uh, at that time like an alternative book, you know, a book that would be any different than the guy who remembers everything and is telling Richard Schickel. You know, it wasn't that hard, as it turns out. That book is amazing. I read that's that's the first of your books that I read, and it was one of those situations. I bought it in uh, London. A London airport, and, I, and my flight was delayed by four hours. So it was just one of. Cool fact: A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at uh1.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over seventy percent of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on LinkedIn.com/people today. Those brilliant situations where you just sit down and you can read practically half a book before you even get on the plane, you know. So it's, uh, and it just had me. I love the way in that book you even sort of you start off with almost like it's almost like a western with his family he's sort of owning dry goods stores and the great great grandparents and things like that so there's a real line between you know the cowboys he's about is going to play and the actual history of the west yeah and that had never been done and wasn't done in Schickel's book and um i you know i stumbled on it again i had no idea and i stumbled on it and then it 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 struck me, yeah, this is the Western that later on we see played out fictionally in various movies that Clint makes. Um, and it was a great, it's great Americana as Clint really is great Americana. You know, um, I always say when I teach, you know, that Clint is America's winner. You know, he's the guy, he's the guy that wins always. Even if he loses, he wins, you know, and he's like Trump, you know, he stands up and he says, only I can do it. And then he twirls his guns and he says, a man's, a man's got to be a man's got to be a man and man's got to, you know, do all alone poor man he's got to ride into the town all alone and shoot everybody and then ride out without a scratch and jack is the loser you know america's loser he can't win he loses everything you know so at the end of chinatown he loses the woman he loves he doesn't solve the case everything's a mess that's jack you know he's mm -hmm. the loser and i prefer the loser you know i as a persona and as a theme and as a serious as a serious subject but i didn't know any of this about clint cuz even though i thought about him a little bit you know in my time and i had interviewed him i thought he was a shrewd you know packager of himself and he is i didn't know very much so many people i called you know said what you're calling me about clint um does he know he's going to kill you for calling me you know mm. <laughs> I'd go, oh, well, no, I don't even, you know, I just wanted to come and talk to you. You know, Ted Post, the director, said, I can't believe you're going to talk to me about Clint. Does Clint know? I mean, he's not going to let you do that. And I said, well, I'm not doing it, you know, with him. And, okay, then come over. And then, you know, his producer of like 10 or 13 films and childhood friend, you know, he said to me, well, how do I know I can trust you? Because I have a lot to say. And I said, I don't know. Why don't you look to see if you like the cut of my jib? That's what I usually say to people. And he said, oh, come on over. Turns out he was a he's a big sailor and I'd use the cut of the jib. He said, so you'll sail? And I go, no. <laughs> <laughs>
<laughs> you know, and then, you know, I, I went to talk to the guy who wrote Any Which Way But Loose. Uh, he was living in a cabin, you know, out in the in the wilds and of the valley. And he's, he said to me, he returned a letter I sent to the Writers Guild, and he said, you're the first person that has ever asked to hear my side of the story. I, he said, if you want to come, I'll tell it to you. You know, and he was, that's dollar for dollar, probably Clint's most successful film. And then the sequel, and then this guy was basically sued out of existence in a way that I talk about in the book, because Clint does, you know, he does sue people out of existence. An another Trumpian. Another Trumpian holiday. Yes, he tried to sue me out of existence too, so. I was I was going to ask about that because because yeah I mean when after the the shickle sort of authorized biography uh, your version certainly um, showed you know feet of clay yeah that would have been a good uh, title. <laughs> 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 I, I've got to repeat one of the stories that you tell in that for our listeners, which I think is a brilliant one, is when he's making Honky Tonk Man and mm -hmm. he wants to keep the Cadillac because he's a great sort of, you know, he's a little bit tight-fisted, let's say, and he he takes a shine to the Cadillac. And so in the script, it's going to be beaten up uh, and, and, you know, deteriorate throughout the film but because he wants to keep it it just stays gleaming new until the end well there's a lot of that in the book he really had a lot of he pioneered a lot of sort of modern hollywood um i would call it crap like product placement he was really keen on and there's many many scenes in his movies that start with the insignia of the car which he's giving you a product placement for so he can have cars and in his life and for his crew and for his company, et cetera. And uh, it was very normal in Hollywood now. It, it wasn't really happening to John Ford in quite the same way. Right. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, you know, I talk about, especially when you get around to the monkey movies, he was he's always been a very, very shrewd marketer of his own image and his films. And he pioneered black booking, you know, and mass, you know, dumping as many of his uh, films into theater, as many, dumping his film into as many theaters as possible. Um, he pioneered that, you know, in the uh, mid to late 1970s. And um, I, 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 this is also something that everybody does now. Um, mm. And is, is, a, is a terrible thing because it crowds other films out of theaters. He, so in many ways, you know, I find him to be the embodiment of Hollywood, whereas Jack's nickname is Mr. Hollywood. He's the embodiment of the other side of Hollywood, this little, 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 little sliver of artistic integrity and, and, and cool and uh, um, hip and um, with it. Clint is the embodiment really of America. I mean, it's really about making money and selling and, and this whole life reduced to this simple theme of a man's got to do what a man's got to do, you know, which I find just just to say it, you know, uh, or only I can fix it, just to say it reduces it to its superficiality. If Jack stood up and said, I'm going to go out with my gun right now and solve all this, everybody in the audience would snicker. <laughs> But when Clint does it, everybody feels tremendous relief and pride, you know, that we've got this guy who's even better than John Wayne and, you know, can ride the horse. And no matter how old he is, and even if he dies in the film, somehow he's redeemed by his behavior to an immigrant boy or whatever. He's always making himself good and saintly, regardless of what shitty thing happens in the movie. You know, mm -hmm. Jack doesn't do that. He doesn't go like, I'm really a great detective in this movie, you know, or I'm really a great, I'm homeless, but I'm really great and iron wheat. I'm really a good man. No, he's not a good man. Mm -hmm. 
Mm. He's a human being. He's very flawed and screwed up and possibly um, possibly somebody who should be aborted because he's like uh, pathological. Um, and he, he enjoys playing pathology and America's losers and misfits. And, and Clint plays the Western hero. I wonder what Jack Nicholson's Dirty Harry would be like. Because I can imagine him playing that in that film. I can imagine that. But it, it wouldn't be, as, as you say, it wouldn't be that throwing the badge in the water at the end wouldn't be like a defiant and then turning up for the sequels. You know, I don't think, I think those kind of movies came to Jack. Um, I think they're too stupid. Right. You know, you know, to, Jack is a smart guy and his movies are pretty smart. By the way, I love Dirty Harry. It's a really good movie. Is it is it fascist and, and, and stupid at times? Yes. But it's very shrewdly done to, mm. to make to pull you along. It has a, such a creepy villain that you don't care how that villain is taken care of. By the way, probably the best villain, you know, that Clint ever had. And, and that's a long time before you get another good one. But he's a, it's a very, you know, Don Siegel's very cleverly written, is very cleverly cast, very beautifully shot. Clint has always looked like a slightly taller, manlier Rock Hudson. And so he never looks handsomer than mm. in that movie. And so it's a very appealing movie, but I think it's it's also stupid and, and offensive. It gets reduced to a guy jumping on a bus full of screaming school children and then like shooting the guy, daring the guy to go for his gun and then shooting him and then throwing a star away. It's, it's clever, but I think it's stupid. And Jack would have said, he makes a movie like that, Jack does, The Border. Of course, yeah, with an English director, I think. Yeah, yeah, Tony Richardson. Right. Yeah, yeah. And it's the ante. Dirty Harry, because like Jack can't win and he can't succeed. So that's not going to happen in the same way. You know, he's going to be, uh, but but Clint puts in things because he's shrewd, you know, that makes him sympathetic. Even in Dirty Harry, like he has his dead wife. Mm. He's a lonely man. He's always a lonely man. He's up against the bureaucracy, which consists of the law and judges who quote the law to him and stupid officials. You know, this is a very populist approach that people like this, you know. I'd be the last person to say that the law is always good and the judges are always good, but it's uh, it's always contrived in such a way that it's simplistic. Yeah, I mean, not just shooting people first. It, it doesn't seem not to be people first. Doesn't like doesn't seem to be working for America at the moment. Put it that way. Like the bank robbery hot dog scene, which is. Spectacularly good scene as filmed. And we were talking about how Cagney made movies in which he was brilliant, but the films were really not very cinematic or very good, really, as films. Well, Dirty Harry's really great as a film, even though at times what's going on on the screen is completely stupid. You know, here's a guy, he's, shoot, he's having a hot dog, and he says, oh, what's going on across the street? Oh, oh, darn, now I'm going to have to interrupt my lunch and go across the street. Shooting like an Unforgiven, where he goes into the saloon and shoots everybody, and they all shoot at him, and everybody shot, shot, they all die and he walks out and he's not even he's not in dirty harry i think he has some ketchup on his side <laughs> oh it turns out to be a nick you know a, a nick and it's a, a totally brilliant scene but come on this is this this these scenes like this have contributed so much to our deterioration of our culture and gun culture and mm. ugh. You know, I love the bit in Zodiac when Mark Ruffalo comes out of what a screening of uh, Dirty Harry and says, "Oh, he shoots him in the end." <laughs> you know, it's just like they're 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 desperately trying to find this serial killer and they'll never find them in reality. But in the film, he shoots him. You know, it's fine. Yeah, and another problem with Dirty Harry, which again I said, I really is a rare Clint Eastwood film I really enjoy and like, even though I hate it 
in, uh, in some ways. The real problem is that he then goes on to make Dirty Harry, you know, over and over and over and over and over and over and over again in different ways. Um, uh, he draws on that forever. That's his wellspring. You know, mm -hmm. that's his wellspring, that and, and Leone. And I like Leone because Leone never pretends to be real. Mm. Leone is a cartoon. He's a he's a he's a he's a graphic novel, and he's never pretends to be real. There's no reality. There's no pretense to reality. Clint always pretends to be real, and this is real life. And he puts he 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 sees himself that way, you know, as as making a commentary on real life. So the westerns are real, and the contemporary films are really about real and later on in his career when he becomes a director he starts making like biopics and 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 dramas about real life events so he goes even further into and the, these become even more ludicrous you know like the j edgar one not uninteresting and not completely terrible and some of them are like pretty good but they're best when they when when you know like in letters from iwo jima when when he can't understand what the actors are saying <laughs> <laughs> And he, and he doesn't project himself into the film, you know. But and that's a and that's a pretty good film too. As a director, he he knows where to point the camera, and he has a lot of discipline as a filmmaker, which amounts really to uh, not discipline of like what shot to include, but like start, finish, and make the next film after that, um, which Jack was incapable of doing. Sure, sure. Proved himself incapable of making more than three films because it becomes consuming for him and um, becomes crazy for him. And Clint is methodical. Talking about directors, you, you, you've you you've split your, your work between, well, filmmakers like Hitchcock and Fritz Lang, and then also actor-directors like Ian Eastwood and Mel Brooks. Is it, it does it become difficult? That sort of do you change approaches at all for for when you're looking at those 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 different categories? Well, well also, I mean, I would add also screenwriters because there's five books, and, and then uh, Tender Comrades, which is about the blacklist, um, and these are separate, all separate categories really of of thinking. Well, remember, I said to you, and it's it's the honest truth it's things are circled off a list right so other things are on the list that i never get to write about and right. uh, including people will say to me sometimes why isn't there a woman uh, subject for a biography i go because you know my stupid editor said to me barbara streisand she doesn't really turn me on and i go mm. well she doesn't turn me on either but you know that's not really that's not really what we're discussing is it you know right that was that was like 20 or 30 years ago. It'd be a very bad uh, idea for a book now. But I don't care as much as you think. There's there sometimes when a director has made many, 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 many movies like Hitchcock did, let's say, okay, and Woody Allen, I just finished a book about him. It becomes a very difficult job of storytelling because it's boring. Mm. Then he made this movie, then he made that movie, then he made this movie. Actors tend to, and, and Hitchcock had a relatively uh, modest private life. Woody Allen does not, as we know. But he's also an actor, and so is Clint, you know. Uh, and they have personal lives that are messy and that show up in their films in various ways. Hitchcock was much more of a like, I like to do this kind of story, and then I'm going to do it, and then the next one. So it's it's a problem as a writer to write an 800 page book about Hitchcock and keep up a narrative drive. Right. That isn't, that isn't. And then he made his next film. And it's the same problem with Woody Allen, because even though he has a messy private life, that messy private life only shows up in various ways. And, and it, it's not, it doesn't, some of the films are completely apparently 
unaffected by it. And you can't keep writing about, you can't say over and over again that Hitchcock put his obsession with blondes into his next movie. Because the third time you say it, it's repetitious and boring. And you have the same problem with people who are very prolific and have done a lot of work, whether it's uh, Clint Eastwood or Hitchcock or Woody Allen. And um, the trick is to find a way to tell the story that will take care of all the movies and treat the movies with relative equalness, you know, um, and give them give them their proper weight and their proper balance without boring readers, uh, including people who know that movie backwards and forwards. Um, and it's 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 a real problem. And it's sometimes a problem made easier by messy lives. Mm. Mm. Which, which, I, you know, and I, I don't, I don't want to say actors have messier lives because who has a messier life than Fritz Lang, um, or Woody, or Clint, you know? But Fritz was just a director. He wasn't mm. in his movies, and his life is incredibly messy and exciting to write about. And it, it alleviates, in the case of Fritz Lang, a lot of bad movies. <laughs> <laughs> because I don't, I don't love his movies, and I didn't choose to write about him because I love his movies. There's one, two, or three that I really love, you know, and that's enough. It shows there are one, two, or three that are genius, right? Um, and then people can argue about which one, or two, or three it is, you know. But some, most people won't disagree about Metropolis, and they won't disagree about yeah. So his exciting life. And writing about him as a person and as, as a character and as his themes and obsessions as a person and as a character alleviate many of the bad films that come along that you're stuck writing about. But if you have a relatively bookwormish life, you know, like, like Hitchcock or Woody Allen, it becomes a problem. It's a problem for the writer to figure out how to do it. Now, I, I kind of like those problems, but I only like them when they're solved. <laughs> In retrospect. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I like the challenge of them, but I, but I, I, they're they're best solved, and uh, they're really never solved till you're done working, and then you're stuck with whatever you did, and then they're solved. But they get solved along the way in various ways. But when somebody, strangely, when somebody, for example, Mel Brooks, he, he directed like twelve or thirteen movies. Bless him. How, how many? How many are good? And that's part of the story. But he, it was a different structure because you got he got done making movies in like whatever it is, nineteen ninety two or something. And then he has thirty years left, and he's still alive. And you have to find like an act three that makes some sense and is good, you know. But you only had to write about thirteen movies, and and or however many there are, and then his many many other little appearances, most of which are inconsequential. Some movies, so like when he remakes to be or not to be, there's something to write about, you know, because you can compare it to Lubitsch and you can talk about the differences. And then there are some memoirs of like what happened on the set, which are fascinating. And then you can, there's a lot to write about. But what do you write about when it, even when you get to, I don't know, History of the World Part One, which is, you know, mostly a terrible movie. There's not a lot. To, I was on the set of that movie. It was, it's mostly not a good movie. And like, yeah, you said, how many of them are great? Well, only one is great. Young Frankenstein. And you can argue about which one it is, but I think it's Blazing Saddles, what some people would say. Okay, I'd say Young, young Frankenstein. Blazing Saddles would be one of my uh, 10 favorite post-60s American movies, period. And I think it's a great movie. Okay. But it says a lot to me. I like the movie. It talks to me. Young Frankenstein, I find quaint and, and amusing and, and beautifully pictorialized, you know, and the producers I find to be, the performers are great. 
Um, the material is interesting. It's kind of a one note. Uh, and so I don't get too excited. You know, I like uh, Spaceballs, you know, because it speaks to me. And I think he had very little understanding or appreciation for the genre. So he just like went full, you know, full out, you know, let's just let's just film the fart, you know, and that's what that's what he's sometimes good at. So I kind of like it. But as films, there are very few that are very good. But but I say, great, because I don't have to write about 50 films. I can write about 13. That's really nice. I did this whole, like, maybe it's 600 to 800 page book about Orson Welles, and it all ends before Citizen Kane. <laughs> and people say, is that the hardest book you ever wrote? No, it's the easiest, because I didn't have to deal with analyzing the films at all. And I didn't. I, I sneaked them in in various ways. And then I had a sort of postscript where I covered everything. But I didn't have to write a single line of film analysis or description or deal with, you know, people will say to me, what do you think of, you know, Mr. Arcaden? Or what do you think of, of uh, the re the cutting of the other side of the wind? And I go, I don't know. <laughs> It's just like, it's in your postscript where you just say, and he made some films. Yeah, I mean, I don't have to think about them. You know, I might have a personal opinion, but I might not. You know, I don't care. I, I really care about what I get paid to do. And then I don't, uh, I'm not outside of that box. I don't have, I have opinions like a normal person, but I don't, I don't, I don't sit around worrying about what's happening to the uncut version of the Don Quixote film or something. Right, you know? right. I don't, I don't, I don't, I don't think about it at all. I think that's quite a refreshing way of at doing all. film criticism as well. It's just like, I'll do the, I'll do whatever's in my ring. You know, I, 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 well, you know, and there is no film criticism in my book about Orson Welles. I don't right. think there's any film criticism. There is, I do take a position on, like what did Herman Mankiewicz do but that's not a that's not a film critic's opinion really it's the opinion of a journalist so you know when that movie came out oh what is that stupid David Fincher Mank Mank when Mank came out you know people said what do you think about it I said well I don't know I guess I should go see it I really don't want to but I guess I should because it does all take place before or most of it before Citizen Kane so it is in my remit you know and I felt like I should see it and it was a you know it's pretty pretty stupid you know i mean it's it parts the acting is good and it's great great cinematography and, and decor perhaps interesting choices they made and pretty stupid you know i mean not mm. a very this this is not a point of view that i would adopt but i feel the same way about the movie about hitchcock both of these which both of which you know from my point of view crib from my books um and the hitchcock one in particular cribs very strongly from my book which has things in it that no one ever had or knew about Hitchcock. And, uh, you know, the real problem with the movie is that it's stupid. Not not that not that it's a bad idea for a movie or that or that Anthony Hopkins is is bad, which he's not good, but he's not bad. Um, he certainly gives it a try. It's just that all the conceits they adopt and use and then present as real are ludicrous from a film historian's point of view. So and I I would say both about Mank and about Hitchcock. Is that what that movie's called, Mank? Mank, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah it's Mank. I would say about both of those that if they told the real story, the truth, you know, it would be compelling. Mm. Um, like, rather than rather than soap opera everything up and make everything melodramatic, which they did in both cases, and uh, create sort of lurid ideas, you know, inside this thing. Uh, if they tried to tell a, a documentary drama kind of truth about both situations, Hitchcock's real 
nature and and Mankiewicz, they'd have a great movie. Mm. So to mm. me, they just made bad decisions. I think those Hollywood-based sort of biopics or Saving Mr. Banks or reminds me of this. They always have to have the different forces somehow coalescing and and sort of in the end they're kind of friends. And they always have a sort of Freudian, uh, you know, I mean Freud lives on in Hollywood movies to an extent that is unreal in terms of, oh, that's why he turned out to be like that. Oh, I see. I ended, it was the mum, yeah. was it? You know? Yeah. Well, I, no, I, I think it really, yes. And, you know, that's probably a commercial imperative because they're all commercial imperatives. But every once in a while, I didn't see Saving Mr. Banks. I heard it was good. Is it not good? It's just, it's just, it's exactly, it's an advert for Disney. You know, it's, um, yeah. it's, yeah. you know, this cantankerous creative type doesn't want Disney to touch her thing and then he, Disney makes a wonderful film and she's in the cinema and realizes well actually it's quite good well I, I'm not well, I'm not really arguing saying that films must be realistic or true because you know here here I praise Yankee Doodle Dandy um it's a totally wonderful movie it's completely stupid as as uh, history uh, it's false as a history and as a biopic as I, I wrote about in my book um, and as I've I've continued to believe but that doesn't stop it from being a really great movie but in the case of Mank and Hitchcock, they not only made it ludicrous and unreal, but they made it um, stupid and commercial in ways that really aren't good. You know, I mean, that, mm. as you say, taking simplistic explanations and using that as your whole basis of thought for what the movie is, you know, like this idea that Mankus was somehow had his had his, you know, reputation and fame stolen by Orson Welles um, on Citizen Kane and that he was some kind of really jolly guy, that funny guy that that is, is less interesting than than a, an honestly dramatized account of his career, even if you put in song and dance numbers and made it really exciting to watch. Mm -hmm. So they 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 make commercial decisions, you know, that I think are, are bad ones, but it's not always bad to make commercial decisions. You know, I haven't seen, you know, West Side Story yet. I mean, there, there are people that are very good at making commercial decisions and Spielberg has got a pretty good track record and he's pretty good at it. And then there are people that are bad at it, you know, are not good at it, you know. And mm. I, I just think that in both cases, they were looking for... Um, they're looking for Oscars, which are not that hard to get, and and nominations, which are not that hard to get. And the the, the unfortunately, the history of Oscars is rich with films that nobody wants to watch anymore. Right. You know, they really aren't very good. And I, you know, in David Fincher's case, he was honoring his father, which I think is cool. Uh, that was the job, and so he did that. In the case of Hitchcock. They thought they putting in all this, you know, sort of woke stuff and feminist stuff and making Mrs. Hitchcock more important than she was. And mm. she was very important, you know, that this would somehow, you know, create a, a stir of excitement among the crowd and stuff. So I don't know whether it was calculated and conscious or just dumb. I'm, I'm really curious to know how you're how you're dealing with Woody Allen and how given given his situation how his name is kind of on the list still. Yes. Well, uh, I have to watch myself and reply, but, um, you know, it's complicated. Mm. Uh, he's a very, very complicated character who mostly shows himself in his films and then an occasional public behavior and that you have to either judge or report on. And I, he wasn't on my list, meaning mm. I wasn't thinking about him, even though I've always liked his films and I, I, totally respect his career 
uh, and some of it is great. Um, and he, a surprising percentage of it is good, you know. And uh, I admire anybody in their 80s who's still making movies and is working. That's uh, pretty good, you know. However, yeah, it's a problem. It's a problem. How do I deal with the whole Mia Farrell thing and not make it not the whole book um how do i how do i judge that and and does anybody want to read now the answer is and this is maybe broadening it out nicely before we close the answer is strangely people don't read my books very much anyway in america they don't i mean oh. it's amazing it's amazing when someone says to me you know everybody i have ever met has read my altman book i go really i sold like 700 copies or something they in america it's an okay market if you get a lot of attention and you get a lot of reviews and people uh, follow your work and the publisher is happy about that because publishers have a lot to do and they like to get a little uh, reception back. You know, they like to get a good reaction back and they like to do things they're proud of regardless of sales, sometimes kind of like Hollywood in the old days, you know, but I really make half my money and half my earnings in the long run. And that's overseas. Um, and that's if a book lasts and it stays around. So I didn't make any money on Alfred Hitchcock for 10 years and literally no money for 10 years. And, and the reason why is because they paid me too much to do it. Right. I, I knew it at the time, but I'm not going to complain. So they didn't pay me any more than a, a beginning school teacher. I mean, I wasn't well paid, but they paid me too much because those books are not worth that much. But over time, the book has come to be seen as everybody's number one book to cover as much as possible about Hitchcock in a sensible and uh, interesting way. And now I make a lot of money off the book every year. And so do they. So, you know, another... So I don't think about Woody Allen about who's going to buy it in America because his own book sold very poorly. But I think of 30 or 40 years from now, you know, after I'm dead, will that book still have value? And the, and the answer is, I think it will. And I think it will sell in foreign countries. And, you know, there's always for some books, like I did a book about Oscar Michaud, who never made a Hollywood film and was a black filmmaker in the teens and 20s and 30s and 40s and had a very like difficult uh, struggle of a career. And yet was a very, very interesting person. And everybody who I was proposed making that book to, and I proposed for a long time. They said, who's he? How do you pronounce his name? How do you spell it? Wait. And my agent said, Pat, you're not. And I said, are you sure, Gloria? <laughs> <laughs> you know, and she, she's great. So I'm, I'm just saying I, I encountered nothing but resistance. And the only way I got to make the book was by saying, okay, I'll do the Nick Ray book. And then I'll do this other book about asking a show and we'll do a double book deal. And, um, and you can pay me very little money. And, right. uh, but always part of the pitch was because they would say, well, you don't have very many black readers. And I go, yeah, I want black readers. Let's, let's have black readers. Yeah. You know, that's what I'm trying to do here. Brought in my audience, you know, and um, they, but always part of the pitch was this is a great movie subject and tyler perry is developing it into a movie and has been developing and into a movie for several years and i think it's going to happen and that's something that when i'm doing a book sometimes those kinds of markets or those kind of considerations are more important to me than how many people are going to read the book in hardcover in its first year of existence in the U.S., which is something I wish a lot of people would buy it and read it in hardcover in the first year in the U.S., which is the year that means the most to the publisher, too. But it just really often does not happen in my case. And some of my, my most treasured books have sold the least and mm -hmm. never like Tender Comrades has never made a dollar 
that I know of. Right. Not a dollar. Right. I think our advance was $5,000 split between the two of us. Actually, I think I took um, the advance and went to Greece and interviewed Jules Stassen and told my collaborator, because I was the senior partner, that he could have the first money back out of the royalties. But there have never been any royalties. Right. <laughs> so is it a less good book? No. <laughs> <laughs> is it is it's probably my favorite book the same with backstory almost no money there's five books there you know almost you know you know some of my books are most famous you know robert altman has never made any money i get royalty statements saying i owe the publisher it was in published in like what 1985 or something they, they still have it <laughs> <laughs> it's out of date. It's out of date because it ends, you know, before he comes back and has the third act of his career. Um, it's indispensable if you care about Robert Altman. It's a really, really great job. And everybody knows it who cares about Robert Altman. But it's a very small number of people who care enough to buy and read a book, you know, I'm judging by my judging by my royalties. And that and that and that has never sold a foreign right. And um, do I care? Well, yeah, I'd rather it sell and I get some royalties. But do I really care? No, I'm past it. I'm beyond it. There was a time, you know, maybe about 10 years ago or 15 years ago where I thought, well, maybe I'll make a living. Mm. Mm. <laughs> but I don't, I don't, right. I barely do. And uh, I don't care anymore. You know, um, I, I take the long view, which is that in the long run, the book is still valuable and good. Yeah. And look, uh, this podcast is definitely going to get some of those books book sale numbers shooting through the roof. <laughs> well, let me ask you, what do you do when you're not doing this uh, terrible uh, free thing that you're doing? <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm, well, I write, yeah. I uh, do, do a lot of criticism. Okay, well, I'm going to say this to anybody listening to the podcast, yeah. but I'm really going to say it especially to you. Okay. I am the editor of two book series in America. And uh, one is at the University of Wisconsin Press, which doesn't do very many film books, and they tend to do erudite ones that you've never heard of. And uh, they, when I say they don't do very many, if they do one or two a year, that's a lot for them. But I also do um, the series editor at the University of Kentucky Press, and we do lots of film books. We have an open door and an open mind to subjects. We try to do books. We're not interested in scholarly books per se because there's really no market and people don't read them. So we try to uh, broaden it out and make it as popular as possible. But to you, I say, yeah, is there something you want to write about? Why don't you write a book for the University of Kentucky Press and submit a proposal? And to anybody listening to this podcast, I say the same thing. I will, I will only try to talk you out of it by saying it's not much of a living and and uh, it's very, it's a struggle. And I got that. <laughs> got that message loud and clear good good the key is to love your own book and if you love your book i can get up every morning look at a copy of a book i wrote 30 years ago and feel a real jolt of happiness and pride mm. i can visit i get things sent to me from around the world so-and-so's bookshelf look so-and-so's bookstore look so-and-so this book was mentioned in the such and such you know someone sent me something the other day saying cagney we have a facebook group that are obsessed with Cagney. Would you please join? We really love your book. I join. Mm. <laughs> I'll probably never say anything. But you can't. It, it it a book that you like that you've done a good as best job that you can on, and that it's it's forever, and it's a, a badge of pride forever, mm. uh, and a badge of joy forever. It's never. Um, it's a millstone while you're writing it, and then afterwards. It's a badge of, of honor that you will love. Uh, so I leave you with that. 
That's amazing, Pat. Thank I you. To, I look forward to your proposal. I will send one. I will send one presently. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. Don't don't work hard on it till we talk, because honestly, you should do that. Because it 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 podcasts. Who knows what the future of them is? Will they be archived? Will they be watched after their time span is gone? I don't know. But books, mm. you can't burn them all. So that was me and Patrick uh, talking on a whole range of subjects. Conversation really, really, really went to some some very different places and all entertaining and interesting. And a little bonus at the end, as I had promised with uh, Patrick, um, offering an open invitation for anybody who wants to pitch uh, a book idea to him. Uh, so uh, hopefully some of you might, might take him up on that. Wouldn't it be great if someone got a book deal on the basis of this podcast and then when the book was coming out i got to interview them wouldn't that be interesting hell it might even be me it might even be me thank you very much for listening thanks to elliot atkins for the music ali howard for helping out with the art and until next week take care <laughs>